Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Daniel Pink's books have helped readers and organizations around the world rethink how they live and operate. He is the author of the New York Times bestsellers, A Whole New Mind, Drive, To Sell Is Human, and When. His books have sold millions of copies that have been translated into 42 languages. And today, he's here to chat about his latest bestseller titled, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Dan, welcome. Thank you for having me. Good to be here with you, Jason. Love your work and love this book. And when I first saw the title, The Power of Regret, pretty provocative, how looking backward <laughs> moves us forward. And so I'll start with, there are a couple of big questions. You know, first off, what have we been getting wrong about regret? Well, what we've been getting wrong is the idea that when we experience regret, there's something broken with us, that it's a sign of weakness, that it, that when we experience regret, that it makes us, it, it hurts us in some ways, it makes us weaker and that we should always be positive and that we should always look forward. And that's just foolish. Uh, it's not what science tells us. Science tells us that regret is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. It is arguably the most, it's the most ubiquitous negative emotion that we have. It's one of the most ubiquitous emotions we have of any kind. And you have to ask yourself, why is that the case? And the reason that, is that it's useful. So what I'm trying to do is just get rid of this insipid, no regrets philosophy, the idea that we should be relentlessly positive all the time, that we should ignore anything that's negative and that we should relentlessly look forward rather than ever look backward and draw lessons. So you spent three years examining decades worth of research on the science of regret. You yeah. about Thank you for reminding me about that. Three year decades. Uh, yeah. I'm curious, there are so many interesting studies, tidbits, facts. I'm curious, what was the most surprising you came across? I think what, what surprised me, the, well, there were a lot of different things, Jason, but I think that the most surprising thing came less out of the academic research than out of some research that I did, which is the universality of these regrets, is that, you know, I went in some of the research that I did looking for demographic differences, looking for, say, differences by race or gender or education level or nationality, and there weren't that many. <laughs> That's it. So, it. so in a way, the biggest surprise was what wasn't there rather than what was. I actually did a pretty concerted effort to try to find demographic differences. And there were not many. And when I collected regrets from around the world, I was suspecting that I would see all kinds of national differences. And I didn't see that many. So that, I think that was the biggest surprise. It's, it's like, it's like Sherlock Holmes. It was a dog that did. <laughs> I thought, well, for, for me, what I found to be interesting is the, the buckets of regret, if you will, the most common regrets. And in the book, you summarize the most common regrets in 2005, then again in 2011, and again in yeah. 2021. Right. And at the highest level, what, what did you find and what was surprising to you? Well, what I, what I found is that when, so that way of looking at regret that you just, that you mentioned. So, so for years, uh, academics asked people about their regrets and categorized them by the type, by, by, it's a little wonky way to put it, but uh, by the domain of life. So it's like, this is a career regret. This is a finance regret. This is a health regret. And what they found in the early days is that they thought that education regrets were the most common. And then they realized that's because all the studies were done on college students on college campuses. 
It's a little bit distorted. And so then when, so then in 2011, these two researchers, very good researchers, one at University of Western Ontario, the other one at Northwestern, did a more traditional form of public opinion polling. And they found that it, it was all over the place. People had career regrets. People had romance regrets. People had family regrets. People had education regrets. I tried to do this. I put together my own even larger quantitative survey of the U.S. population, what was the biggest survey of American attitudes about regret ever conducted, and thinking that I would crack the code here. And I found that people regret a lot of stuff. <laughs> they regret, <laughs> they have career regrets and education regrets. What, what I ultimately concluded in looking at a very large sample of qualitative research of, we collected, I mean, at this point, I think today we might have crossed the 19,000 regret thing. Now, like over 18,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. What I found is that when I looked at those qualitative regrets, um, the domain of life wasn't as important as something going on underneath it, that, that four core types of regret were expressing themselves across these different domains. So, so building off the four core types, you have a chapter dedicated what you call the deep structure. Yeah. of regret includes foundation, boldness, moral, and connection. Could you briefly walk us through each of those? Sure. I thought it was so interesting. So foundation regrets are, the catchphrase of, of regret is if only. And so each of these has a certain sound or certain, I, I don't want to call it slogan, but a certain way of talking about it. So foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. And these are regrets about, again, let's go back to these surface domains here. These are regrets about finances. A lot of regrets about Spending too much and saving too little. That was pretty typical foundation regret. Uh, a surprising number of regrets, or at least surprising to me, of people who regretted not working hard enough in school and therefore not establishing a path. Uh, some regrets about health. Oh, is that you? Oh, yeah. yeah uh, re regrets about <laughs> outside, of, outside of the U.S., not so much in the U.S., but outside of the U.S., uh, a lot of regrets about smoking. And so these are, you know, small decisions you make early in your life that accumulate into negative consequences later on. So that's, that's foundation. Boldness regrets are if only I'd taken the chance. And these are regrets. Again, they run the gamut. You're at a juncture. You can play it safe or take the chance. If you don't take the chance, not everybody, but people regret it more often than one would think. And again, that, not to beat this horse until it's completely lifeless, but it, it doesn't matter the domain of life. So, so Boldest regrets are about not asking somebody out on a date. They're about not studying abroad when you were in college. They're about not speaking up at work. They're about not starting a business. More regrets if only I'd done the right thing. Once again, you're at a juncture. You can do the right thing. You can do the wrong thing. Do the wrong thing. A lot of people regret it. A lot of people regret it. And then finally, our connection regrets. And these are regrets about that's if only I'd reached out. And these are regrets about relationships that should have been intact or that came apart usually by drifting apart and you don't do anything about it. And so it drifts apart. So how do you think about what's healthy, what's not healthy in terms of acknowledging regrets? You know, I think before I read this book, you know, I kind of had the, the image in my mind of the cliche of, you know, the old man at the bar, you know, having a drink by himself and saying, you know, I should have done this, I should have done that and so forth. And, and, you know, I'm in my mid forties now and I think of my regrets. And so is there a fine line between looking at regret in a way that's healthy versus unhealthy? Absolutely. And that's hugely important. And 
the the challenge is that we haven't been taught how to to me it's not so much a fine line as it is, it is sort of a direction we haven't been taught how to take the proper direction toward those kinds of uh, toward regret and also negative emotions in general so one approach is that we ignore it we say okay you know what i don't look backward ignore it forget about it no you know um, no regrets that is not an effective blueprint for living it's not however as you say you don't want to be that old guy at the bar you don't want to be that old guy at the bar drowning your sorrows and your regrets, wallowing in your regrets. That's an even worse idea. What we want to do is we want to confront our regrets and think about our regrets. And I think there's a really big kind of meta point here, which is having to do with like, what are our negative feelings for? What are they? they why do they exist? Every human being has negative emotions. And so what are they, they serve a function, all right? So they're not for ignoring and they're not for wallowing. They're for thinking. They're signals, they're information, they're data. And no one ever tells us that. That's the thing that's, that's so frustrating to me, Jason, is that, that no one ever tells us how to deal with these negative emotions. And what we should think about them as not as strangers to ignore. Ah, forget about it, you know? And not as like, St. Peter passing final judgment on our worth as human beings, but as teachers, they're telling us something. And when we do that, we normalize these negative emotions, but we also use them to clarify what matters to us and instruct us on how to do better in the future. So, so rather than drowning our sorrows and regrets and thinking about them every day, the more appropriate step, but to do a little, do a little digging and really ask yourself, what could I have done better? How can I learn this lesson in this new endeavor or a new relationship and use it as a tool? Exactly. Precisely. And so you mentioned feeling, and I thought it was so, I thought it was such a great segue in the book. You talk about William James and his views on thinking and the involved consensus that, you know, thinking is for doing. Right. And so how should we be thinking more deeply around feeling and regrets specifically? It's exactly what I was talking about. It's exactly it. So, so if thinking is for doing, and let's just stipulate that that's the case. And, and I think there's a good argument for it. Why do human beings think? We think in order to do, we, we think in order to, we think in order to do. Then what are feelings for? I think feelings are for thinking. They're signals, they're data. I mean, I hate to strip too much of the majesty away from them by talking about it that way, but they are information, they are signals. And the question is, how do we respond to those signals? And I feel like we haven't been, taught how to effectively respond to those signals. So in some cases, we just say, I don't hear anything, blah, blah, blah. You know, we put our fingers in our ears and say, we don't hear anything. And in other cases, we're kind of traumatized by those, the existence of those signals. We say, oh my God, it's a negative signal. There must be something wrong with me. Everybody else is doing great. I'm flawed. I'm terrible, you know? And so what we, we just have to think about those things as information. And, and the thing is that when we look at our negative emotions, we have a lot of negative emotions. <laughs> the most common is regret. And I think the most clarifying and instructive is regret. But as I was saying before, we haven't been taught how to deal with it. So at some level, we've been sold a bill of goods about never having. So you lead me to my next question. How should we deal with it? Regret comes, how do, how do we deal with it properly? We know from science how to do it. I mean, and it's, and, and I've sort of refined it into three steps. We can think of it as inward, 
outward, forward, inward, outward, forward. So inward, we have to think about, reframe how we think about ourselves and our regret. What, we, what often happens is that because we're not well-equipped to deal with negative emotions, we think we make a mistake, we screw up, we do something stupid, and we like, oh, we just excoriate ourselves. The way we talk to ourselves is brutal. The way we talk to ourselves is cruel. Most of us would never talk to a human, another human being the way we talk to ourselves, truly. And there's an easy solution. Don't do that. Basically, treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. And there's a whole line of research in what's called self-compassion that I found very compelling, which is the first step is reframe inward and treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt. Recognize that your missteps are part of the human condition and that normalizes them. The next step is to is outward. And here there is some very, very strong evidence in favor of disclosure. Disclosing our regrets unburdens them. Un, un, you know, we, we, unburden, we unburden ourselves. And it actually can build affinity too. We think that when we disclose our regrets, people will think less of us. When we disclose any negative attribute, when we disclose any vulnerability, we think that people will think less of us. But I think there's 30 years of research showing that they generally think more of us when we do that. But the most important thing about disclosure is the sense-making process, which is that emotions by their very nature are amorphous. And when we write about them or talk about them, we convert that amorphousness into words which are concrete and less menacing. So, and then finally, so, so we make sense of it and then we have to draw a lesson from it. And as you were saying before, and the way we draw lessons from it is by getting some removed from it. There's a whole line of research in what's called self-distancing, where the research shows very clearly we're pretty bad at solving our own problems. We're better at solving other people's problems. So in some level, treat yourself like somebody else. Treat yourself like another person. And it could be, it's goofy things like talking to yourself in the third person, which there's a lot of evidence for its effectiveness. Seriously, there's things like, one of the things that I really like is, um, is, uh, is placing a phone call to the you of 10 years from now, because the you of 10 years from now knows what to do. And I think we can make some pretty strong predict. I think we have a pretty, we can make a pretty strong prediction about what, the, what Jason of 2032 is going to care about. I don't know. How old will Jason be in 2032? 50 something, right? I actually do the math in my head. I'll be, yeah, 57. Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I think we can make a pretty safe bet about what you're going to care about. I don't think you're going to care about what color bicycle you bought or what color car you bought. I don't think you're going to care about what you had for dinner tonight. I think you are going to care about these other things. I think you're going to care about, did I do the right thing? Did I take the a risk that I could have taken that was sensible? Did I connect with people I care about? And that's it. And so all of these things allow us to, you know, normalize these regrets. So anyway, so basically treat yourself with kindness rather than contempt, make sense of it through language and disclose, and then extract a lesson from it by getting some removed. And, and if we do that, and it's not that hard. And, and the thing is, it's like you were talking before about a fine line and I, between ignoring and, and wallowing. To me, it's, it's almost like a triangulation. It's like you can go this way or that way, but I'm saying, no, no, go down the middle. And I think when we learn that, when we learn how to do that, we get past the idea that either A, we should ignore negative emotions or B, everybody needs therapy and just simply say, hey, let's have a small toolkit that we have to deal with negative emotions. For me personally, I played basketball in college and, and, and many of my regrets, I have many regrets, but a big one is that early on in college, I partied way too much. I should have been a lot more focused around basketball. 
And I am curious, are there certain stages of life that tend to be, you know, common areas of regret? Is it education, college, is it high school, or is it completely situational? But for me, it seems to be college because I was a disaster in college. I don't know. That's an interesting question. The one thing, I don't know. The one thing that we do know, and this comes out, this is one of the you know, I put together this very large sample to try to get at demographic differences, as I was explaining before. The one demographic difference that made it, that mattered was age. And what, what we saw was that when people are younger, they tend to regret, they have more regrets of action rather than inaction. Uh, and as they get older, they have more regrets of, of, of inaction. So I think that's the, I think that's the case. It's a little tricky because, you know, people, like in the surface domains, I think people are going to have different priorities at different times of life. I mean, there is a time of life effect that, you know, certain points in our life we have, we might have slightly different priorities and that could give rise to other regrets. But in general, I think what matters more are regrets of inaction or and regrets of action. That is when we're younger, I think we often will do more stupid things, take more stupid actions that we end up, but over, but we end up resolving those in many cases. We make amends, we contextualize them. Uh, and what really sticks with us over the long term are things we didn't do, didn't make that call before somebody died. We didn't go to that funeral. We didn't take that trip. We didn't start that business. We didn't ask that person out. on. And, and so building off of college, you, you, you cited a fascinating experiment at Duke, the Duke lottery experiment. Can yeah. you elaborate on that experiment? Yeah. yeah. You didn't play basketball at Duke, did you? No, at Columbia. Columbia, just okay. a, you know, very average, very great average basketball player. Listen, you're playing uh, NCAA basketball. That puts you in elite company. Seriously. I, I, I'll I take got, it. Seriously, you know, it does. So Duke, the Duke. So this is an interesting technique about anticipated regret that the crafty librarians of Duke University decided to do. So, so, so Duke, you know, like, like all kinds of public facing, consumer facing entities wants to do surveys of its, its services and what people think of it. And so they would send out these, you know, these email surveys for students to do about, you know, how often they go to the library and what they like and, da, da, da. and no one ever filled it out. And so they decided to do an experiment where they offered basically a, a, a lottery, but they did two different kinds of lotteries. One of them was they said for half the students, I think it was like 3000. They said, here's a survey. If you complete the survey, we're going to do a drawing of all the people who completed the survey and they're going to get a, I think it was a $75 gift card. Okay. So it's a traditional kind of uh, raffle. The other one was where they got a little craftier. They said, we're going to enter everybody, all 3000 of you into a lottery for a $75 gift card. And we're going to pick a winner. However, if that winner has not completed the survey, we're going to go to somebody else and keep selecting until we have some, and, and it turned out they got twice as many people filling out the survey because what people were doing is they were getting people to anticipate, anticipate this regret. If I don't complete the survey and somebody who does, you know, wins it, I don't really care. But if they pick my name and I haven't done it, that really bums me out. And I want to avoid that fee. I want to avoid that, that stab of regret. And, and so that's what's known as a regret ladder. It's a pretty interesting technique. It's worked in, um, it worked really well at Duke. It's worked in varying degrees at, at other kinds of places, but it, it is an interesting way to think about, to use our anticipation of regret to alter our behavior 
hopefully for the better. What's your, what do you think that says about us? You know, where, where I went on this, I, I went to a different place. I was like, this is just a different version of FOMO, our problem with FOMO. It is inter- that's interesting. I, I think that's an interesting point. I, I think part of it is that, is that I think that's a little glitchy in our brains. So it's sort of, to me, it's, it's actually closer to a uh, loss aversion that the cognitive bias of loss aversion, right. where we feel losses, um, more deeply than we, than we get that the pain of law, the pain of a loss is greater than the joy of a equal gain. And I think that the pain that when we anticipate regret, we, that, you know, Kahneman and Tversky have said losses loom larger than gains. And I think that in this case, regret looms larger than rejoicing. And so I think it's just, I think it's just a, a glitch. I think that the FOMO issue is slightly different and that the, you know, FOMO is a sign of, it's also a sign of anticipating our regrets, but what it means is that it's a sign that we have gone too. we're trying to maximize every decision. And we're trying to like, we're trying to anticipate every regret and we're trying to maximize every decision so that we avoid regret for everything. And that is a recipe for a miserable life because, you know, again, cardinal principle of social psychology is that there are maximizers, people who say, I'm going to make the best decision in every case. So today I'm going to wear the best shirt for Tuesday and I'm going to get the best topping on my hamburger tonight. And I'm going to hire the best plumber for my apartment. It's not a close call. People who maximize, maximizes are miserable because you can't do it because you have the stress of every, every decision becomes this test, this incredible moment of stress. You can't maximize every decision. And so you end up being miserable. And so people who satisfice good enough is good enough are often happier. To me, the central lesson here is a lesson for living is, is like, like as human beings, we have to decide what do we maximize on and what do we satisfy on? And my view is that there's only a few things that we should maximize on and everything else we should just chill out. And, and what are some of those things? Well, I think that regret teaches us that it's yeah. our foundation, you know, uh, stability. I think that it is a boldness. I think that it is morality and it's also love and connection. Those are the things. And again, if we go back to this little trick, this, you know, this, our, our regret exists because our brains are great at time travel. And so we can go backward in time. You can go backward in time to when you were in college and say, oh, if only I had partied less and worked more, I'd have done X, Y, or Z. All right. So you're, it's incredible that thought process. You travel in time, you negate what really happened. You fly back in time to the present and imagine that present is now reconfigured because of your actions in that reimagined past. It's crazy. It's incredibly cognitively difficult, which is why like little kids can't experience regret. Their brains haven't developed enough to do that very, to do that extremely, extremely dexterous act. But when we think about maximizing and satisfying, we can take time travel, as we were talking about before, in the other direction. We can go forward in time and say, what is the Jason of 2032 going to care about? And the Jason of 2032 wants you to maximize on those things and doesn't give a shit about most of the other stuff. <laughs> so if we were to zoom out, you know, let's just, uh, I'm an optimist. So I'm going to assume that COVID's coming to an end. Yep. And so things are going to open up, but there is some serious scar tissue, you know, in terms of mental health, in terms of oh, loneliness. Yeah. And, and I'm curious, your, from your perspective, what are you excited about in our new world and, and what concerns you? I think what I'm, hmm, what am I excited about? I think that for some people that this forced 
two years of reflection. Um, I hope it was clarified. I think for some people it might be clarifying because inevitably when they're reflecting, they're looking back and they're thinking about what they regret and regret is a very clarifying emotion. I think that could be part of what is fueling this great resignation. So I, I think there's a, uh, you know, there's a chance that people will make decisions that are better that take into a, that actually maximize the right things. Um, there is something I've always been a believer that human, that the fact that human beings are conscious, that we of all are conscious of our mortality is significant that I, I think it's what gives rise to a lot of these boldness regrets. This idea that we know, we don't think about it every day, obviously, but we know at some level that we're not here forever and that we're mortal and that we're going to die and that we got to do something. And we just had a two year period where people were confronted with their mortality. And I think at least in my lifetime, an unprecedented way, I think that is likely to drive people to make better forward thinking decisions, maximizing the right thing. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm optimistic about. What I'm pessimistic about is I think that's a good metaphor. I think some of the scar tissue, actually, I have to say what I'm most pessimistic about is that I think in the workplace, COVID has been not great, but not calamitous. I think in schools, it's been calamitous. And I mean that K through 12, all the way through college. I think people who had to go to college during COVID and had a suboptimal experience. I think that people, that, that kids who had to do elementary and secondary school during COVID in general, had a really suboptimal experience and, and that's, and it went on for two years. That's a long time. That's a long time. And it's typically the case with these, with anything that in education that is screwed up, it hits the lower income kids hardest. Agreed. That's what leaves me. I, I, I have to say, I, I think that's, I think the legacy of that is going to be ugly. Agreed. Very worrisome. So I'm curious in spending years researching regret. What have you changed personally? Well, the one big thing I think is the, these connection regrets. And I mean, not to get woo woo on you, but it, it sort of changed how. We're my buddy green. You can get woo woo on us. It's all good. <laughs> all good. It sort of changed my notion of love in a way, in a weird way. So, so what I heard, so again, you think about these connection regrets where, where people want to reach out but they think it's going to be awkward. And then they think the other side is not going to care. And they're wrong on both of those. It's not awkward. And the outside always cares. And you think about what are these regrets that everybody's expressing. They're not only telling me what they, but when they tell you what they regret, they tell you what they value. And I think what they value here is love and, and not in and, and love way beyond romantic love, way beyond romantic love. That's the thing that I think is important. I think that we, we, our notions of love and popular parlance are too confined to romantic love. And we haven't thought about love in the broad, in a broader way, not only like, the, especially love for people who aren't our, you know, parents and kids even be, you know, so we have, we think about romantic love with our partner. And then we think about maybe the love we have for our kids or parents. And then, but way beyond that, there's love that's actually really important to people in, in friendship and things like that. And so for me personally, as someone who was, who actually wasn't who basically believed that I'm not going to reach out because it's going to be awkward and the other side is not going to care. I've sort of changed my mind. My, my own change is that if I'm ever at a juncture where this choices, should I not reach out? Should I reach out or should I not reach out? Being at that juncture has answered the question. 
Always reach out. <laughs> I mean that very seriously. And I, this is something that I wasn't very good at. And I'm a firm believer in always reaching out. That I think that's the biggest change in my own behavior from doing this work. We've had Esther Perel on the show and she echoed a similar sentiment. And, and the advice she gave is you very quickly will gauge interest level on that response. And more often than not, you'll be surprised that there is an interest level to, to connect and it's meaningful. Totally. Totally. That's the thing. I mean, we're wrong. It's like, we're, it, it's, it's a form of pluralistic, it's a form of pluralistic ignorance. That is, we tend to think that, that, that we, th we tend to think we're more special than we really are. So if, I mean that, yeah. if somebody, because here's the thing, it's like, if I were to reach out to an old friend who I haven't talked to, let's say for a decade, okay, I might think, oh my God, you know, they're going to think it's really creepy. It's going to be really weird. They're not going to care one way or another. And then, but if you ask me, hey, what if that friend reached out to you after 10 years and said, hey, I've been thinking about you and haven't talked for a while. Would you think it was creepy? I would say, no, I would be touched by that. I would love to hear from that, you know? And so we don't extrapolate enough from our own experience because we think we're more special than we really are. I mean, obviously all your listeners are special, <laughs> but you know, I think that's, I think that's what's, I think that's what's going on there. We're also just way over indexed on, on fears of awkwardness. And there's a lot of research yeah. on this. You know, we think that, oh, we shouldn't give a compliment because people are going to think it's weird and it's going to feel awkward. They don't. We think we shouldn't say thank you because people are going to think it's weird and creepy. They don't, <laughs> you know? Um, so we just had to, I really, I'm a bigger believer in just pushing back those fears of pushing past those fears of awkwardness in, in any domain. I love it. So in closing, what's the one hope you have for readers? What's the one takeaway you want them to, to take from this book? Oh, I want them to understand that regret is normal, that regret is part of the human condition. And that if you treat it properly, it can be powerful in clarifying what you value and instructing you about how to make better decisions and solve problems faster and find better meaning in your life. Well, I love the book, The Power of Regret. Daniel, thank you so much. A pleasure being with you. And thanks for the opportunity to get a little bit woo-woo. <laughs>